We're looking at the adventures of people who chose to jump in and ride the wave of divine generosity. God's generosity towards them, and they're responding with a life of generosity. People in the Bible who did this. First week, we spent time in Genesis where through Abraham's adventure, the savers amongst us were challenged to look squarely at the Christian's freedom to borrow against a completely promised future, a completely secure future. And this week, you'll want to turn to the eighth book of the Bible, Ruth. So turn there if you would and keep a finger bookmark. Eighth book of the Bible where those of us who are unusually blessed, maybe you're unusually blessed with time at this point in your life. Maybe you're unusually blessed with talents. Maybe you're unusually blessed with treasure. And here through this book, you might learn wisdom for how we can best bless blessers among us. Best bless blessers. Try to say that, by the way, three times fast. Best bless blessers. Come on, try with me. Best bless blessers. Best bless blessers. Very good. That's pretty hard. Let me begin with this question. Have you guys ever tuned into CNN when they do their annual Heroes Award show? I'll explain what it is if you haven't. Basically, CNN, a news network, in 2007 started to honor 10 heroes who quietly but generously gave their lives to others. Given their lives to others. Uh, This first came to my attention in 2010, so just five years ago, when Katie and I tuned in. And there was a hero whose story particularly affected me in a way that brought the Niagara Falls to my face. All right, I'm not going to lie. His name was Harmon Parker. Parker was once gripped by addiction in his life, uh, having dropped out of school at age 10. Age 10. And later in his life, in the grip of addiction, a pastor approached him after a service, presented him the gospel, and he decided to trust Jesus. He went on to live with that pastor and his family for a period of time, when finally the pastor asked him to accompany him on a missionary trip to Africa. And it was while in Africa he began to ask some questions of the people there. And he, he learned and he heard all these stories all over African communities regarding lives lost trying to cross dangerous rivers. Whether it be due to flooding, a, a crocodile, or a hippopotamus. All these people whose parents had died, whose uncles had died, whose brothers or sisters or friends had died because they just tried to cross a river. So he and a friend set out to learn how to build bridges. Since 2003, he has been building bridges through his organization, Bridging the Gap. It's a great name. And this connects walking populations, this organization connects walking populations to commerce, to education, and through health care. He's built these bridges using basic materials and local tools so that locals will be better able to make repairs as needed. So it'll take a little extra time to build the bridge with tools that are indigenous to the people so that they can build or they can repair those bridges if necessary. To me, Harmon says, bridges are beautiful. And I went, did a little research. Sometimes I do this, you know, when you're watching a show and you have time to kind of like look up the person a little more, find out a little more. So I, I Googled him, looked on a few links, and he went on to elaborate on that statement. He says, bridges are beautiful. But he goes on to say, you know, Jesus bridged an insurmountable gap to bring me to God. So every time I build a bridge, I'm reminded of the bridge Jesus built for me. That's awesome. I was so inspired when I read that, when I saw this story. And it just so happened that 
the airing of CNN Heroes that year coincided with our launch of community groups in October of 2010. Everyone at that community group after the Hero Show was, was talking about the show. And specifically, people were talking about this very person, how they were impacted by Harmon's story. And so I thought I'd just go ahead and ask, hey, you know, did anyone actually go to the website and donate to Bridging the Gap? And there was just silence. <laughs> kind of looked at each other. Finally, one of our participants, uh, Sue, uh, Janine, you were there, I think, maybe, uh, maybe James, I think, was there as well, maybe. Uh, Sue, who's, who's since moved on and living in St. Louis, kind of raised her hand and said, you know, I, I actually, I did give. I, I went to the website, I gave a little bit. But she admitted, like, the next morning, I just kind of started to wonder, is that it? Is that kind of like, is that all? And maybe I should find out more, maybe I should visit, maybe I should even join in the effort. And with that, the conversation ended. No one had any, anything to say. And I think what we happened in that moment is that we experienced what I like to call an inspirational hangover. I don't know if you've experienced this. You likely have. It is a phenomenon by which you're inspired in the moment by someone's life, by their story. You're jazzed up about it. You go to bed inspired, but you find no vent for your inspiration. No outlet by which to express the inspiration. So you wake up the next morning. Maybe you share with a few people. But eventually, you just sort of sigh and think, what was that? <laughs> what was that about? And it can be very discouraging because it leaves us slightly more depressed or at least a tad bit more apathetic than before we heard their story. Because we think, there's another moment where I heard something great, heard something inspirational, but I didn't really do anything about it. One of the Bible's heroes who quietly but generously gave her life to benefit one person was Ruth. Herself a poor widow, she gives all she has to an equally troubled but older widow in Naomi, saying, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people should be my people, your God, my God. Is that not an expression of being willing to give everything to a person, her very life? One man hears about her story and gets to witness it up front. That man's name is Boaz. He wants to bless someone who clearly blesses others. So as he walks with God and he looks to God, Boaz patiently demonstrates how to best bless a blesser. I practice this so many times. Best bless a blesser. You can do that. And that's what we're going to learn this morning. We're going to see in Boaz's story three major movements to blessing a blesser that can serve those of us who are inspired to bless someone who blesses others. You know those people, those people you see in your lives. Maybe you don't know them well, but you've at least got a hint of how they encourage someone, how they serve someone, of how they're an advocate for someone, quietly or otherwise. It's inspirational. And you might think to yourself, what can I do to bless them? And Boaz, his story, is a great example of how we can best bless a blesser. First, we're going to see in his story, we're going to see these three movements. He's going to bring the blesser into his current blessing. Secondly, we're going to see that he's continually committing the blesser, to the blessing of God. He is praying them back to God. And thirdly, he's open to being the blessing that God supplies. All right, so those are the three movements we're going to see this morning in Boaz's story. First, bring the blesser into your current blessing. 
Now, as we listen and watch the story, which we're going to do here, rather than just read simply from our Bibles this morning, though I want you to have them open to follow along, we're going to see a little bit of an image and storytelling from Treehouse Productions. So let's watch that together. Ruth, starting in chapter 2. In chapter 1, we learn about where Ruth came from. A man named Elimelech marries a woman named Naomi in the town of Bethlehem. They have two sons, and they all travel to Moab during a famine. Elimelech dies, and the two sons marry women from Moab. One marries Orpah, the other marries Ruth. Those two men die in Moab, and Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem. Orpah returns to her family, but Ruth travels with Naomi back to Bethlehem. Chapter 2 begins with Ruth asking Naomi if she could go and glean from the fields. To glean means to go into other people's fields and gather the grain that was accidentally left behind by the harvest workers. This was generally done by the poor, the foreigner, and the widow. As Ruth is gleaning, she comes across a field belonging to a man named Boaz. He was a righteous man from the same clan as Ruth's father-in-law, Elimelech, who had died. As Boaz is going through his fields, he notices Ruth and asks one of his workers about her. The man responds, She's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi. She asked if she could glean here and has been working since early morning, except for a short rest. Boaz then says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Stay and glean with the women here on these fields. Don't go to anyone else's. These men won't harm you, and when you are thirsty, you may drink the water that my workers have. Ruth falls to her face, bowing to him, and saying, Why have I found favor in your eyes? I'm a foreigner. Boaz responds, I've heard about your situation. I've heard that your husband has died, but that you chose to leave your family, friends, and country to stay with your mother-in-law in a foreign land. May the Lord bless you for this. Ruth is very thankful and goes back to gleaning. At mealtime, Boaz calls to her and brings her to the table of the workers to eat and drink with them. She ate until she was full and even had leftovers, which she saved. When she goes back to work, Boaz tells his workers to let her glean even in places that they haven't harvested, and don't rebuke her for it. He even tells them to leave some extra grains of wheat for her. We will be following that story along the way. So to be clear, it is because she is a blesser that Boaz wants to bless her. It's because she is a blesser that Boaz wants to bless her. His servant in charge of the reapers tells Boaz a story, and that's what immediately moves him to be generous. We also see an answer to why have you done this. Boaz responds in verse 11, look there, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and your mother, your native land, to come to a people that you didn't even know before. So it's not that, that Boaz saw Ruth, you know, this, this sort of exotic woman with the Moabite eyeliner, and she's like, whoa, hey, look at this, right? And although every little film I watched this week about Ruth that's been done pictures Boaz coming onto the scene and being like, oh, look at that, right? But that is not what motivates Boaz to help Ruth. But neither is it totally unselfish and philanthropic either. It's not because he has pity, unconditional pity on her but it's because he sees in her someone who blesses. He's inspired by that. He's inc- and he wants to bless her in turn. Now stop to consider those people in your life who sacrificially bless others. And tell me if that desire to bless 
doesn't well up in you. As I, as I mentioned some examples that you might have encountered, like the single mom I talked to this week who was working overtime at a grocery store to provide the right school for her kid who has special learning needs, giving of herself. Maybe it's your old youth pastor still giving his or her life to connect kids to Christ in a way that's relevant, in a way that's fresh for them. Maybe it's your neighbor who's always lending a hand to new people in the neighborhood and always letting you borrow stuff, whatever it is, sometimes borrowing it for a year or two or three. Maybe it's a person in your community group who opens their home and lets others stay late, or the person in your community group who always seems to be checking in on others. It could be a coworker who takes on clients that won't yield much income, but they just need help to set a budget for their family. Maybe it's an uncle, a grandparent, a friend who always seems to volunteer to take the kids so the parents can have adult time. They always raise their hand. Maybe it's the dad who's imposed a de facto ceiling on his career because the time required to advance up the corporate ladder isn't worth sacrificing the time to lead his family, to generously love his kids, to generously engage with his wife. Maybe it's the designated driver for friends acting foolishly or the flatmate who listens despite her own pain and heartache And you know, guys, as those generous faces and voices and images flash before you, I hope and I think there's probably a desire that wells up in you to bless them. Now, what do you do with that? You feel it, you want to say, yeah, that's someone I would like to to bless in some way, shape, or form. What do you do with that? That's why we have Boaz's story. Boaz begins by bringing the blesser into his current blessing. He incorporates them. He invites them in. He currently possesses drinking cisterns for his workers. So he encourages Ruth in verse 9. Ah, you drink from them also. I know men and women are separated. But look, I have water. Here it is. I know our culture says otherwise, but bring, I'm going to bring you into my blessing. He's currently having lunch. So he invites a foreigner into this. Ruth, the foreigner. Verse 14. Come here, eat. Eat some bread. Dip some morsel in the wine. She gets full there for lunch, even has some left over. He's currently connecting bundles of barley through his reapers, right? So in verse 16, he tells his reapers, hey, pull out some of the bundles of barley. Leave extra for her to glean. Leave a little extra for her. And by the way, as a side note, not only is this a neat way to incorporate her in the current blessing, but it preserves her dignity. You notice that? She gets to glean the, gl- the gift. She hasn't stopped working. She continues to go through the field and pick up what is a gift to her. You do well to remind anyone you bless to preserve their dignity as you bless them, as you give to them. Remind them that, hey, I actually benefit from you. I am blessed by you. If you don't, find a way to let them bless your life. So bring a blesser into your current blessing. If you're firing up the barbecue or the braai, right, you got some good sausage or sausage product, or a good meat, invite that neighbor or that really kind family from your kid's football team. Right? Say, come along, you know, we're doing this. I'm, I've been blessed with food. We're doing this anyway. Come along. If you're going to jam with a band, whether it's a secular band or our awesome rock and worship band, bring someone along who wants to learn guitar or drums. If you're currently blessed with the gift of numbers and planning, bless a blesser many of whom are terrible with their checking and savings accounts. All right, blessers sometimes give away so much they don't know what they actually have to give anymore. Help them. 
Bless them. If you meet with a group of people with whom you pray, you enjoy rich fellowship, invite the blesser into that. If you're going to go watch a game, bless a blesser with your flat screen, with your air conditioning, with your chips and salsa. Make it happen. You're blessed. Incorporate them into your blessing. Start right away, as Boaz does, by immediately incorporating them in the blessing you're already enjoying. Now, after you bless them, what's going to happen is the next hour, might be the next day, might be the next week, might be the next month, you're going to wonder, wonder what happened to them. I wonder, is that it? Or should there be more? And that's when we get this next movement. That's why we have this next movement from Boaz, who continually commits the blesser, Ruth, to the blessing of God. The second movement here. Boaz does something absolutely essential for generously opening the fullness of one's life to another person. He publicly commits them to God's generosity. Look at this in chapter 2, verse 12. Yahweh repay you, Yahweh repay you, notice, for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by Yahweh, by God, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have taken refuge. This is one of the most important verses in Ruth, but it's easily overlooked. It's kind of like, oh yeah, well he's just praying for her. No, he's doing something much more important, something that allows him to be patient to see if God wants to ultimately use him to bring about this bigger blessing. He commits her to God. Make a little note, by the way, and also underline chapter 3, verse 10, where we see Boaz do this again before he hastily says yes to a quick marriage. Committing the blesser to the blessing of God has so many benefits, but all of which kind of fall under basically two categories. You minimize yourself as their Messiah or their Savior. You minimize yourself as their Savior. You maximize your openness to God using you. All benefits basically fit under these two things. You minimize yourself as their Savior. You maximize your openness to God using you. You might remember in the New Testament a man named John the Baptist. This character was a prophet of God. He was the first prophet in almost 500 years to come on the scene because he was the one to help get people ready for Jesus, the Savior of the world. New Testament says everyone in Israel at one point was coming to him. But he was also in tune with God to know when he was needed to bless God's people, and when he needed to just get out of the way. So in John chapter 3, he recognizes, and we hear him almost externally processing, saying, there's the Lamb of God, now's the time, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Why? Because he's in tune with God to know when to say when. Know when to be a blessing, and know when to back off. For those of you who are gifted in helps, maybe you're gifted in service, you're gifted in compassion and mercy, there will be a temptation to immediately and fully commit yourself to someone in need. Fully. But in doing so, you increase when you were supposed to decrease. You increase, you show yourself, I can save you. I can be your capital H helper. When in reality, you were supposed to decrease. Intending to help, you unwittingly adopt what's known as a savior complex. I can be the one. Here's how you know, by the way. Here's just a quick test to know if this is you and why Boaz's example of committing Ruth to God is so important. Here's how you know. You frequently ask, if I don't help them, who will? If I don't help them, who's going to do it? Secondly, you get a fluttering, anxious feeling in your stomach. You anticipate, as you anticipate someone's going to make a mistake, they're going to fall, they're going to crash, they're going to crumble, and you get this feeling like, ah, I've got to do something. Or thirdly, 
you seem to care more about fixing someone's problems than they do. And you wonder, why don't they care about this? Why am I working at this and they're, they're not? That's when you know that you may have increased when you're supposed to decrease. And here's a tip. When blessing someone for the first time, make sure that that's you to commit that same person to God and out loud so that it minimizes you as Savior and points them back to the real Savior. If the Spirit leads and you sense that they're comfortable, I would even encourage you to ask them to lead in prayer, to start in prayer. That, that verbally helps them acknowledge God and the need for His help. When you do that, the real Savior grows bigger for them because their reliance shifts from you to Him. And you pray, God, we know all of this help, all of this blessing ultimately comes from you. If you give them space to pray as you bless them, they might discover through their prayer, you might, sorry, you might discover through their prayer what they really need, not what you think they need. A lot of times those of us who, who like to help other people or you'd like to bless other people, it's easy to think, oh, I know what they need. You just assume you know what's best for them. But if you bless them for the first time and you say, hey, do you mind if I say a quick prayer for you? Do you mind if we pray together? You give them opportunity to verbalize, God, you know what I need, and here's what it is. And it might not be what you thought. It might give you an avenue to help them in a way they actually need. Make sense? What this also does, committing a person to God's blessing, not simply your own, opens opportunities also for others to pitch in and bless. Blessing is a community project. We see this in Boaz's story. Keep reading and listening to this story to find out who pitches in because Boaz commits Ruth to God in prayer. At the end of the day, Ruth goes home with about an ephah of barley, which is about five and a half gallons, enough to feed two women for at least two weeks. And she tells Naomi about Boaz, the man who owns the field. Naomi informs her that Boaz is a close relative of theirs and tells Ruth to stay with Boaz and work only in that field. So Ruth gleaned in the field belonging to Boaz until the end of the harvest and continued living with her mother-in-law, Naomi. So what we see there, we see as she gets back home to uh, Naomi, Ruth is affirmed by by Naomi. She has an older, wiser woman Affirming, you did the right thing. Stay in his field. Stay with the women who are working there. And and, and how much does a a young, vulnerable woman need the encouragement, the affirmation of an older, wiser, godly woman? And that's what she gets. She gets that blessing from Naomi. She also gets a wise suggestion for Naomi, as we see in chapter 3. Is Boaz not our relative with with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, go down there, but don't make yourself known until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, go uncover his feet, lie down, he'll tell you what to do. She needed also wise counsel, good advice, so Naomi blesses her with that as well. See, by by Boaz saying, I'm going to commit you to God. I'm not just going to make all your problems go away. I want to see what God wants to do about this. He opens up this possibility for other people to get involved and bless Ruth, including Naomi, who gives her this wise advice, who affirms that she's doing the right thing, she's on the right track. So important. Also, by committing someone to God, it maximizes your openness to God's using you. 
When you open yourself up to God, by committing that person to them, you open up possibilities, including the possibility that you might be the blessing God provides for that person. I actually experienced this recently. I was uh, praying with a couple for a couple I just met. I don't always do this, but sometimes God leads me. And I, there's a, They shared with me a story of how God was using them to bless a single mom. And as they shared this, and we're making a big deal about it, but it just touched me. And then before we, we, we kind of parted ways for the night, uh, I just asked if I could pray for them. As I prayed for them, you know, I just thanked God before them that they had been blessing a single mom. I was committing them to God. And what happens? On the way home, God was very clear with me. Ryan, you need to be the blessing to them. You need to be the blessing to them. And he gave me a very clear way to do that. And you guys know me. You guys know me. I've testified before. I'm, I'm not naturally a generous person. On my own, I was the kid who didn't share you know, his Lincoln Logs with other kids. You know, it's like, give me that. I need one more. Right? I, 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 was, I was a teenager who didn't share his uh, you know, Taco Bell with other people as a teenager. I wasn't, I, I, even as an adult, I was a hoarder. I hoarded like, over-the-counter medicine for years until the expiration date was like five or six years old. My wife had to rebuke me. I'm like that kind of person. I, I don't just give things away easily. But as I opened myself up to God, see, I committed then to God, opened myself up to him, it was like, bam, Ryan, you can be the blessing here. Which leads to the third movement of how to best bless a blesser. Be open to being the blessing that God supplies. By opening up himself to God, Boaz is open to being the blessing that God supplies. Let's continue to listen. Chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. Ruth goes to the threshing floor and does as Naomi told her. She waits for Boaz to finish working and having his meal until he is lying down to sleep. Ruth goes over, uncovers his feet, and lies there. Around midnight, Boaz woke up, startled, and asked, Who are you? Ruth answers, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth was asking Boaz to marry her and rescue her family. Boaz responds, May the Lord bless you for your kindness. You did not go after the young men, rich or poor, but instead chose me. I will do as you ask, for the entire town knows that you are worthy. However, the law says that there is one more person between you and I that should redeem your family. If he does, that is a good thing. If he isn't willing, then I will surely redeem you. So she slept there until morning, but arose before the morning light so that people did not see where she came from. Before she left, Boaz gave six measures of barley for Ruth and her mother-in-law. When Ruth had returned, Naomi asks how it went. Ruth shows the barley and tells her what had happened, and Naomi says, Be patient, my daughter. We will see what happens soon enough, for he will not rest until the matter is settled today. I want to point out a few things here. First is something we need to clear up. Uh, because you may wonder, what's a kinsman redeemer? A firstborn son of a husband and, and his wife inherited both the estate and their name. So if you had a son, you would inherit both the property your family lived on, all the animals, everything else, and you'd also carry on the family name, uh, continuing it for generations. As we looked at last week in Abraham's life, it was a way almost of like continuing life. It was, in one sense, a version of eternal life before Jesus made clear what that really was. So should a husband die, should he perish without a son 
Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10 says that a husband's next of kin is obligated to redeem, to buy back the estate, to keep it going, and the lineage. He does that. He continues the life of the family name by marrying his brother's wife or, or daughter. Okay? That, that's how it worked. That, that was a way that you, as a community, supported each other in case tragedy hit, as it did in Naomi's case and Ruth's case. So Ruth thinks Boaz is that next of kin who's supposed to help, who's supposed to be the kinsman redeemer, thus the redeemer, thus the blessing prepared for her. So she appeals to what Boaz had earlier prayed when he first met her. Do you notice this? It's very wise of Ruth. Chapter 2, verse 12 Boaz prayed, may a full reward be given to you by the Lord under whose wings you have taken refuge. Here in chapter 3, she says, spread your wings over your servant. You've taken refuge under God's wings. Now here she says, spread your wings over your servant to Boaz. In other words, she's saying, you are the answer to prayer, Boaz. You are the wings through which God will protect us, Naomi and I to carry on the family name, to give us life. But notice what Boaz does. He first again commits her to God's blessing. Chapter 3, verse 10, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Notice he's still, you're not my wife yet. We don't know this for sure. You're still my daughter until we see what God has in store. So he's going to check with Ruth near her kin. But first, interestingly, he sends Ruth home with six measures of barley. And then the author repeats this again. He reminds us, six measures of barley. After Ruth reports to Naomi what had happened, gives her these six measures of barley, Naomi is convinced he will not rest until he settles the matter. Now she's right, but how does she know this? How is she so convinced that he's going to go out of his way? The sun won't set the next day until he gets this done. He helps us, whether he's the blessing or not. You know, is she inspired by the Holy Spirit? Is she to be numbered among the prophets? Is that what happens? No. Now, this is pretty interesting. Every number included in the Hebrew alphabet has a meaning attached. All right? So, for instance, this is interesting. For the first seven numbers correspond closely to the first seven days of creation. So, for example, number seven, what do you think that might correspond to? What do you think? What happened on the seventh day when God created? What, what, did, what happened? Yeah, that was a trick question. He didn't create anything, did he? He rested. Good job, guys. It's number seven in, in Hebrew corresponds to rest, to completion, to finishing. Number six, what do you think that corresponds to? The sixth day. Created man. So number six, whenever it's used in Hebrew, has this This meaning of it's connected to man. The creation of human beings. Almost done, close to complete, but not yet ready to rest. Sometimes people send signals that are obvious to those in the know. So I try to think about how to put this to you guys. And sometimes, uh, well, twice a year, I try to get away for a prayer and study retreat to kind of lay the groundwork for sermons like this one. And the first time I ever did this, someone in the church offered to let me stay at their uh, very nice Ritz residence. And the owner had left smack dab in the middle of the table this blue, uh, this blue tip golf tag. 
in the middle of the table, if you can see it here. And my name was inscribed on it, on the back. And I knew, because I play golf, oh my gosh, he, this guy, I think, has blessed me with a round of golf. While I'm here, I will go commune with God over nine holes, all right, at the Blue Tip Golf Course. Now, all it says here is Blue Tip and my name on the back. But because he knew I was a golfer, he could just give me this little signal. I'd be like, yes, golf. But if, if, but if not, Blue Tip, you know, it could be a Ritz restaurant, a spa. I don't know if you're more familiar than I am. That's the kind of thing going on here. When Ruth hands over six bushels of barley, it was obvious. It was an obvious signal to a Jew in the know like Naomi. Oh, he's not going to rest. He's got our back. He's saying, I'm going to do everything humanly possible to have your back, but God must bring the blessing to completion. God must be the seventh. He must do this ultimately. I'll bring it as close as I can. I won't rest until I see God bring it to completion. The big takeaway here, guys, from this story is accompany every blessing with prayer as much as possible. It opens them and you up to what God may want to do, some big provision that you don't know about. You might be tempted to fulfill on your own strength with your own bank account, with your own talents, with your own time. Accompanying an initial blessing with prayer commits them back to God. His blessing. It does two things. It permits you to be 100% committed to someone, 100% on their team, without being the blessing God wants to supply. You're not a worse person. You don't love them less. You're not less in their lives. You can pray for them behind the scenes. You can send them encouraging notes. Be 100% on their team, but you may not be the blessing that God wants to supply to help them. The other side of the coin, it prevents a shallow commitment that tries to pray the responsibility away. You ever done this before? Where you want to help someone, but maybe not so much. I don't know if I want to get involved in this. So you say, you know what, man, I'm just going to pray for you. What do you do? Bye. How many times have you said that? And you don't actually pray for the person. You forget about it. You go about your day. Praying for someone on the spot as you bless them. It opens you up to being the blessing that God may want to use. That's why Boaz can say both in chapter 3, it is good if I am not the blessing, if someone else redeems. It is good. Yet, if God chooses me to redeem, I'll do it. It's a both and. He is completely content because the blessing for Ruth and Naomi rests not in his completed work, but his Redeemer who will complete the work. Let's listen and watch how this story ends, how his Redeemer completes this great work for Naomi and for Ruth. Chapter 4 begins with Boaz at the city gates, looking for the man that is to redeem Ruth's family. He finds him and asks him to sit down to talk. Boaz then finds ten elders of the city, asking them to be part of this conversation as witnesses. Boaz turns to the man and explains the situation. Naomi, who has returned from Moab, is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would let you know so you can buy it here in the presence of the elders. If you won't do it, tell me, because I will if you won't. The Redeemer says he will, and Boaz responds, One more thing. The day you buy the land, you also will acquire Ruth, the Moabite widow, in order to continue the name of her former husband, Malin. Boaz says here 
that this Redeemer will have to take Ruth as a wife, and their firstborn son will continue the name of Elimelech and Malin, not his own. This will result in the child receiving the land as an inheritance, rather than this Redeemer's own children. The man realizes this, and changes his mind. I cannot redeem it. I would not want to affect my own children's inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. The man removes the sandal as a visual confirmation of the transaction. Boaz turns to the elders and declares, You are witnesses that I have bought the land from Naomi. I received Ruth as my wife to continue the name of her former husband, so that his name is not forgotten from his family of his homeland. The elders, along with others who had gathered, say, We are witnesses. They then bless Boaz, declaring, May you be renowned in Bethlehem and have many children. Boaz then marries Ruth, and the Lord blesses them with a son. The women of the town say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, for he has not forgotten you and has not abandoned you. This son shall be a restorer of life and take care of you in old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, worth more than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi embraces her grandson and cares for him. The women gather and name him Obed. This son became the father of Jesse, who fathers David, who becomes the king of Israel. This is where the book of Ruth ends. By the grace of God, this male white widow becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, um, we're thankful for this uh, example. Um, in, in Ruth's story, we also see a story of a man named Boaz who is inspired by Ruth's generosity, by her blessing, and he wants to bless her. God, so often we see people in our lives who are blessing others, but we don't really know how to bless them. We don't necessarily find the outlet for our inspiration that they give us. And Father, thank you for this story, Boaz's story, which gives us practical counsel for how we can step in to immediately bless the person, to commit them to you, and be open to being the blessing if you should lead. Jesus, we thank you that ultimately we are blessed by you, our Redeemer and our God. We give thanks to you in your name. Amen.